Like Josh said, we are going to continue our sermon series in the book of Matthew, and we just read the passage. Um, one of the pastors at Sojourn, name is Mike Cosper, um, and a couple years ago, I think even last year, he wrote a book called Recapturing the Wonder, Transcendent Faith in a Dischanted World. And in the intro of the book, he, he told a story of an experience that he had while he was preparing to write this book, and it's a really kind of a... It's a good illustration to, to start this passage off this morning. He tells a story about a morning that he woke up and he went to a, a local coffee shop here in town in order to work on the book and um, kind of putting that off, procrastinating a little bit. He just wanted to take some time to kind of feel out the room and see who was coming in and coming out. And so he's just people watching, which is a lot of fun. Let's just admit that. And so he's walking just kind of interesting folks who visit local coffee shops and get their Chemexes and whatever else they do with their latte art. And they, uh, a young man walks in and uh, flannel shirt, you know, beanie, skinny jeans, you get the picture. And he walked in with like this, this big thick book underneath his arm. And uh, he goes to the barista, grabs whatever people with skinny jeans and flannel shirts get at coffee shops. And he takes a seat and it was interesting because Mike was just watching him this whole time. I don't know why, for some reason. Um, the kid sat down, and he, he, like, he put his book on the table and then like carefully placed his coffee cup. Then he got out his phone and, and snapped a picture. And then he moved the, the cup over here, the book there, and, like, snacked another, and then he like, stacked the book up here with the coffee cup like balancing. And, and Mike said he did this for like five minutes straight. Until finally he, he kind of settled on like a, a hand prop in the background with the coffee cup like right there. He wasn't holding the coffee cup so he could actually take the picture. Um, but yeah, he, he spent his time doing that. And uh, Mike was just kind of laughing and uh, he's like, I wish I could share this with someone. And sure enough, his wife called at that moment. So he kind of told her the story of the amusement that he saw in front of him. And uh, then he hung up the phone. Instead of working on his book, he took another gander at the kid across the table from him. And he, and he saw that the kid finally put his phone away, took a sip of his coffee, and then he opened up the book. And Mike said it was like this. He opened up that big fat book and he turned a couple pages and he read a couple paragraphs. And then 45 seconds later, the book was closed. Hand goes in the pocket Phones opened up, and he wanted to see what people were saying about his experience at the coffee shop so far. Mike's again laughing to himself, and then he feels his phone buzz in his pocket, and there's a picture on his phone. His wife did some geo-sleuthing detective work on the interwebs and found the location of the coffee shop to see if any pictures came across from that. Sure enough, there's a picture of the latte art in the corner with the book propped up. And Mike, being who he is, could not help but to see, wonder what this kid is reading today. And he zooms in on the picture, and he finds that that young man was reading a book uh, by John Frame. If any of you are familiar with him, uh, the book is basically a systematic theology book on the Lordship of Christ. It's like 896 of the most theologically dense pages you can read on the, the character and nature of God and how he has ordered this world. And uh, 
It's funny, you know, when we hear that story because we see it in the lives of those around us. And then if we're honest, we can see that in our own heart. And at moments when we should be centered on a greater reality and seeking a reward that's promised from God, we are merely satisfied with seeking after the pleasures and the praise of men. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at our own motivations. And the reality for this this morning is that we are driven by like a complex tapestry of emotions. All of our, I'm sorry, motivations. All of our motivations are interwoven um, with both personal selfish motivations and godly motivations and being motivated by the, the praise of others. What we find in our own hearts is that our praise, our prayer, our generosity, these things are always slurred with mixed emotions. We offer these things to God, yet simultaneously we do it before and for the praise of others. The passage we're going to look at today focuses a lot of attention on our motivation for doing something. And just to be clear, what motivations are, motivations are our reason for doing something, the, the, the drive shaft behind our actions. And what we find out for us is that, man, it's hard to figure that stuff out. It's hard to figure out exactly why we are doing some of the things we do. And a reason for that is that motivations are tricky. You know, because oftentimes we, can, we could line up 10 people in a room and they could all be doing the same exact thing. And if we look at their hearts, that motivation behind what they're doing can be completely different from person to person. And so if you think about yourselves this morning, just to put you in that situation, why are you here this morning? You know, why did you wake up early to get relatively nice looking? Some of you are nicer looking than others this morning as far as your dress, so you know who you are. I'm just kidding. You get ready and you get here. Why are you at church? You know, tomorrow you're going to do the exact same thing but for a paycheck. And why are you doing that tomorrow? You know, why are you... Checking your news feed. Why are you listening to podcasts incessantly? Why are you continually distracting yourself from what is right in front of your eyes? You know, some of us were motivated by just a desire to be perfect. Any perfectionists out there this morning? You want your life to be perfect. You want everything around you to be perfect. And people that live with you know your standard of perfection and try to follow it incessantly to your utter disdain and displeasure. Others of you are motivated by like a desire just to be an individual, you know, just to be different than the rest of the society. Like, I'm not like them. So you do things that are, are neat and special and different so that other people see that. Others of us, I'm in this category, I tend to be motivated by peace. And so you might think, this is probably not the case, but you might think something I do is really nice and like selfless and sacrificial, but the only reason I'm doing it is to avoid conflict right in front of me. You know, others are motivated by a need to be needed. And we feel that void that's in our hearts from other people wanting our help and our service and sacrifice. Jesus makes it clear in Matthew 6 that it is not enough to just do what is right. In order to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, what we need to know this morning is that our rightness our good action, our good work must be accompanied with the right motivation. Hear this warning in 6.1. Jesus says, be careful 
not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. There's two words that stick out to me in that first verse. They're two simple words. Be careful. Be cautious. Be on your guard. Why is that? Because Jesus, fully God and fully man, he knows our hearts. He knows our motivations. He knows what lies behind why we do what we do every single day. And please note that Jesus is not saying don't do righteousness. Like that should not be our takeaway today. Be a jerk. Like that's, that's what I really want to encourage Christians to do. But he's saying that we should practice righteousness. It is a good thing, but only when it is tethered to a good motivation, a godly motivation. He clearly states that we will not be rewarded for righteous deeds done in front of others in order to be seen by them. And so what we're going to take a look at this morning is Jesus gives us three good and clear examples of what this might look like in our lives. He talks about our giving, he talks about our praying, and he talks about our fasting. And some of you, if you read, I know the CSB Bible has like how to give, how to pray, how to fast. And I want to be clear, like these are not Ikea instructions on how to do things the right way. And as you know, if you've ever been to Ikea, you probably end up doing it the wrong way anyway. But what these are are rather cautionary tales to be more aware of what's going on in our hearts and our souls as we try to do good before others. So let's start with righteous giving. Verse 2. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. There's a, um, I'm a big Pixar guy. And a few years ago, there's a, a short in front of a movie. If you remember, it's called One Man Band. And it's just a cute little like two, three minute type of a deal. And you've got this guy, you know, on one corner and he's all like, I'm not going to dance because I'll just look goofier than he did on that. Like he's making all kinds of noise and he's trying to impress this girl that's holding up a, a gold coin in her hand. Now on the other corner, you've got another guy who's like fully decked out and they're kind of like combating back and forth trying to win the, play, the praise of this little girl and obviously the reward of that gold coin. And uh, just to be clear, like that's kind of the situation that Jesus is setting up here. Like an absurd hyperbole, an absurd exaggeration of the scene that's going on here. And like, I know it'd be like culture was different back there, back then, but like there weren't people blowing trumpets, like giving money. Like it's just, it's just not what happened at all. Rather, Jesus is calling to attention the motivation of their hearts. Like they are doing what they're doing for the display of others. Could you imagine like we just had giving time some guy, like, reaches into a pocket, like, has a big fat wad of bills, and he's just like, boom, you know, right in the offering plate. Like, that's pretty much what's going on in these verses. What Jesus does as he exaggerates their public display of generosity in order to penetrate our hearts with the hard truth that so much of what we do 
Even our righteousness, even our good stuff, is for the likes of other people. And what Jesus says is, he says, truly I tell you, they have their reward. And we'll see this over and over again. Reward, reward, reward. What Jesus is saying is, they get paid. They get their paycheck. They get what is due to them. In other words, they get exactly what they're looking for. If you are doing things for the praise of others and not for the praise of God, you will receive that praise. But it's not going to last. Jesus goes on to say that only those who give in secret will be rewarded by their Father who sees them in secret. And like some people get caught up on this. And I know we read the Bible and it's full of instructions, the right way to live, the wrong way to live. And we're like, oh, darn it, I've been writing checks to church with my name on it. Oh, it's tied to my bank account with automatic, you know, deposits. Ah, I know what I need to do in order to be righteous from the sermon. I need to go ahead and go in a closet in my home, take out the cash that's in my wallet, make sure it's untraceable, take all my fingerprints off, stuff a new one in an envelope, use like a sponge to go ahead and seal the envelope because we don't want any DNA experience on there, and then find a way to like, just kind of like slip it into that offering basket because no one should see that I am giving. Jesus is not saying that. He's not saying that, oh, when you sign up for like a GoFundMe page on the interwebs, like you need to be anonymous. Otherwise, you're a sinful person, and you're doing it for your own motivation. What's crazy is that we so often think we know the motivations of other people, but we fail to take the time and spend the time to really think about our own motivations for doing the things that we do. So my encouragement for you this morning is just to check your heart. Jesus is asking for a radical response out of our hearts, one that transcends our present reality. You know, if you're more concerned that others see you give a hundred bucks than you are about the circumstances of the individual that you are supporting, then I want to call you to examine your heart. Living generous is a reflection of the gospel. We should be generous so that others see it, and we should not be generous so that others see it and think better of us. We should generously give to others because the immeasurable amount of grace that has been poured out to us through Jesus. So like I said before, this is an area of concern in your heart. I don't know your heart. I want you to consider taking the time just to pray about it. Capture moments out of your day just to reflect on your own motivation for doing good for others. Are you being good and giving to others to fill some sort of void in your own heart? Or is it in order for others to see your generosity and kindness and service and sacrifice and think better of you? Or is your giving or your good deeds an expression of the grace and mercy that was poured out to you by Jesus Christ? The next example Jesus gives is praying. And we pick this up in verse 5. We see this, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask him. 
In these verses, Jesus just basically highlights two things. First, he condemns the hypocrites who love to stand in the street corner praying in order to be seen as pious and holy as those around him. And then two, he mentions the babbling and wordy prayers of the Gentiles who think that the more words they pray, the more their prayers will be answered. Kind of like the people who buy like 100 different lottery tickets, you know, when it's up to 800 million. They're like, I have a better chance at winning. Well, technically you do, but it doesn't, you, you know what I'm saying, it falls off there. But that's kind of the idea here. The more words they pray, God will somehow hear one of them and their prayers will be answered. What Jesus says is their reward will be the same. They will be paid in full by the temporary praise of men. Those of you that know me know that I'm kind of an information junkie. Um, Which if we dig deep into my own heart, it's because I have like a strong motivation with my, within my own soul and my own heart to like be competent in front of others. And so to, in order to go ahead and safeguard myself from the utterly fearful experience of appearing incompetent, I flood my ears and my brain and my mind on a regular basis with information so I'll know as much as I can that's possible about everything in the world. That's just me. One of the podcasts I love is called um, Radio Lab. How many Radio Lab listeners out there? A couple people in there. It's good stuff. Um, they have a um, their podcast is dedicated to investigating a strange world. And a couple of years ago, they had a, a podcast um, that was all about this thing called the Monk Bot. The Monk Bot. Here's a picture on the screen for you. And this thing is over I think, 450 years old. Monk Bot. What happened was a guy named King Philip II out of Spain. He had a son, and his son was deathly ill. Uh, Doctors couldn't fix him. Medicine couldn't fix him. So he brought in a a holy man for the church, and he told the holy man, if you give my son a miracle, if you heal my son, I will repay miracle for miracle. What happened is that his son survived. His son was healed. His son got back to normal. And um, so what was his response? How did he repay miracle for miracle? He commissioned a guy to go ahead and create this mechanical bot. And what this thing does is you take a key and you put it in the back of the bot and turn this mechanism, and then this this monk, and it still works today, you can check out the YouTubes and find it, but the monk like walks around the room, and he has beads of rosary beads in his hands, and his other one is beating his chest in prayer, and you can see that mechanical mouth open and close, like he's praying silently. And what King Philip II wanted to do is he wanted to create something that would perpetually offer praises to God for years to come after he was dead, which is quite an amazing thing. That's an absolutely pious, you know, at least he didn't hang up a billboard or something, right? I really like the motivation, but the more I thought about that story as far as how it pertained to my own life, I started reflecting my, on my own prayer life. Start to think about how much I pray like that monk bot in terms of my prayers being cold, my prayers being distant, mechanical, repetition, repetitious, without heart. How often I've prayed to others also to be heard by others and not my Father in heaven. How awkward is it sometimes to pray in front of other people when you realize what's, what are the motivations in your heart? 
Am I praying in such a way so people think I'm a good prayer? Or am I praying to the holy creator of this world? So I want to make sure that you guys hear me. We're not going to stop praying publicly in church. All right? I love the moments where we gather on a Sunday and take some time out to pray corporately as a body. I love the times quarterly where we gather as a church to spend time in prayer. I love when we gather for the member meetings and take a good 20, 30 minutes and be praying for the life and the people of this church in order to see God's mission go forward in this community. We're not going to stop doing that. Praying in front of others is not wrong. It just shouldn't be the only time that we pray. Jesus is not saying only closets all the time. Again, he is encouraging us to be careful. Sorry for the long quote, but this one's great. This is out of Cosper's book again. I owe him a lot of thanks for the work he put in. Cosper says this, Henry Nguyen likes the spiritual life to keeping a fire in a hearth in a small cottage. When the door is closed, the fire warms the whole space. Whenever the door opens, the heat escapes, and eventually the whole room cools. There are times to open the door, times to share and invite others to know what we've learned and experienced, but they are the exception and not the rule. In a world of constant display, many of us have never closed the door at all. Every spiritual experience is something we try to share and broadcast. Every moment of silence is interrupted by noise, by messages, and by the presence of others. We long for more depth and more intimacy, but we don't realize the small ways we are draining it out of our lives. In this example of prayer, Jesus invites you to practice solitude and secrecy. But in order to do this, you've got to withdraw and disconnect and distance yourself from the world around you. Why does Jesus tell us to pray in a closet, you might ask? Well, back in the old ages, that was the only room in the house with the door that closed and locked. It was a place of solitude, a place of silence. You know, Jesus is not commanding all people to only pray in closets all the time. But I think it's a good idea. You want to know why? Never seen a picture of someone taking a selfie in a closet. It's not glamorous. It doesn't put us in a good light. It's quiet. It's dark. No interruptions. No news feed. No false self to portray to the world, just you and God. What happens when we are by ourselves without distractions infiltrating our presence? We become grossly aware of our need. Listen to that. Think about how much you're distracted. Without distractions infiltrating our presence, we become grossly aware of our need. Oh, there's this author, Shel Silverstein. And um, one of my favorite books to read to the kids growing up was The Giving Tree. I love that book. And we even have like a, a couple little snippets, 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 snippets from the book hanging up, framed in our house. Um, but Shell provides this quote 
And I think it's right on for us this morning. It's a lot shorter than Cosper's. Underneath my outside face, there's a face that none can see. A little less smiley, a little less sure, but a whole lot more like me. When's the last time you slowed down to reflect? When's the last time you hit pause? When's the last time you faced the reality of your own existence and limitations and reflected on your motivations, the why you do the things you do? My encouragement this morning, it's kind of practical. It's not the most godly thing in the world. It's two words, slow down. Just slow down. Even hearing those words brings rest to my soul. Stop thinking about the next thing, what you're going to do, what you're going to say, what next year is going to bring. Instead of curating your Instagram, curate the importance of your presence in and to the world around you. Turn off your phone, your music. Me, I've got the wireless headphones in all day long at work, just flooding my ears. Turn it off for a while. Step outside the noise. Step outside your circle of influence. As one pastor said, do not become a victim to the compulsive, distracting habits of our age. Do not become a victim to the compulsive, distracting habits of our age. These last couple days have been good for that. Just open up your windows in your house. There's birds outside. I don't know if you knew that. Nature. Sit on your porch. Get outside. Take a walk. And don't count your steps. For the love of God, don't share them on the interwebs either because it just makes the rest of us feel bad. <laughs> Spend some time in a closet. Slow down. Train your soul to be nourished by communion with God. Train your soul to be nourished by communion with God. What's going to happen, though, just want to warn you, when you start taking those distractions away, new ones will just emerge. Instead of the form of an electronic device or music or information through a podcast, it might look a little bit like fear, anxiety, worry, doubt, inadequacy. I want you to be cognizant of those feelings that flood into your soul. That's where the work begins. And in those moments, instead of distracting yourself with something else, just allow those, those feelings to pass through you. My encouragement is to do something called breath prayers. Breath prayers are something that started about 6th century A.D. And it's basically a, a single thought, a single idea that can be said, thought, spoken through the duration of a single breath. And the original one was, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If your breath is a little bit shorter, Lord Jesus, have mercy. As you breathe, 
Speak those words into your heart and your soul as you breathe in and as you exhale. Allow the words and nourishment from that small time of communion with God bring you peace and rest. Because this is the rest that we can hold on to. This is the rest that sustains. Prayer is not something we do to be heard by others. Prayer is something we do in order to talk to God. Our reward for prayer that is rightly motivated is peace and the reminder that we are not in control. Even greater, our reward is knowing that one day we will have perfect communion with God in heaven. Jesus' last example is righteous fasting, not intermittent fasting for those workout folks out there. Righteous fasting. We look at this in 16. Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites. For they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others but to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We're not going to spend a lot of time on fasting, but in case this is a new idea, fasting is basically something that you do or, sorry, something that you go without in order to focus your attention on something else. And so when we fast, we go without food. Some of you have been doing that through the lentil season right now, is that we go without something and we take the time that we would have used to do that thing to center it on God and reality under his rule and his reign. And what Jesus says is that we shouldn't look like we're fasting when we're fasting. How many of you remember those, like, Snickers commercials with like Danny DeVito or Brady Bunch, you know, all that stuff. And like, what happens when we go without food? You're like, I'm doing it right now. I'm kind of angry at you for keeping on talking. We get, we get hangry, right? The low blood sugar, the blood pressure, sugar, something scientific goes down and our, our anger goes up. You know, Jesus is basically like, don't be a jerk when you fast. Like, look normal. And like, some of you are also concerned, like, oh, I'm going to... I, I do a lot to take the oil away from my face. <laughs> like, I do not want to put more oil on. All Jesus is saying is, like, just look normal. Like, brush your teeth, okay? Put a comb through your hair if there's some left. Put pants on, you know? Like, big expectations here. Just be normal. Just be normal. Be nourished by communion with God as you go without something you desire. And don't bring attention to your piety, your holiness. So that's all we're going to do on fasting this morning. We're going to wrap up um, just like Jesus wrapped these verses up. He talks about treasure. And as I read these verses, starting in verse 19, I don't want you to think about treasure in relationship to money. What's the word that we've been using all throughout this sermon? It starts with our reward, right? We heard that ten times, reward, 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 and treasure. So think about it in the context of what we've been talking about this morning. Verse 19, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Think about treasure as the praise, respect, or admiration from others that you regularly seek. 
when we read this verse in the whole context of, of chapter 6, it really takes on a new meaning. The message that we get from Jesus is that the praise we get from other people is a treasure on earth that will not last. It may bring us temporary happiness and joy, but it's not going to fill the void that's in our hearts or provide us with treasure and reward in heaven. Jesus encourages us to pay attention to what we value or treasure the most because that is going to determine our reward. Jesus encourages us to store up treasures in heaven. And note this, Jesus does not remove our motivation. He knows the depth of the human souls that we are always motivated to do something. What he does is he redirects our motivation away from the reward of the praise of men and onto the reward that he promises. What's true in reality, just like I mentioned, is that God establishes reward to be a motivating, motivating factor in our lives. God establishes reward to be a motivating factor in our lives. Like I said, we've heard it over ten times. And I don't know about you, but as soon as I got here working through this passage, it just made me a little squeamish. You know, it made me a little nervous. Because what do we do with our kids? We yell at them. You're only doing that because we told you that we'll get you ice cream if you obey. Right? We think that we can only do things with a pure motive if we are altruistic or completely sacrificial and only doing something for the good of that thing in and of itself. So I'm going to cater to the nerds just for a second, but I'll, I'll be clear for the rest of us. We can thank a guy named Immanuel Kant for this idea that it is wrong to seek after something that's going to benefit yourself. Immanuel Kant was a German philosopher in the 1800s, and he basically argued that a person is good or bad depending on the motivation of their actions and not on the goodness of the consequence of those actions. He argued that virtue should be his own reward. You should be nice to your sister because that's the right thing to do. We've never said that in our house, just to be clear. In other words, your own emotions or desires, if your own emotions or desires cause you to do something, then that action cannot be considered good in and of itself. It's for this reason that Kant put aside the Christian faith. He put in play the notion that folks who live their lives for some kind of reward are self-seeking and not altruistic. A pastor a few years ago um, from Minnesota uh, wrote a book in which his main idea was that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And that was a big book. I don't remember much, but I do remember a, a wonderful little story that he wrote in the beginning of the book. And he kind of wrote parts of the book to combat this, this Kantian idea of that we cannot do something that's right if it is motivated from ourselves or something that we'll get. And so this pastor told the story, um, basically asked himself the question, is it wrong to buy my wife flowers? It's probably not why you, where you thought I was going with this, right? Is it wrong to buy my wife flowers? Why did he ask that question? 
Well, he recognized in his own soul, like, like guys, think about it. You, you bring your wife flowers, and you get joy looking at the expression of her face. Oh, flowers. Oh, you're, I'm happy because you're happy. This is, this is great. And so according to this Kantian idea of altruistic behavior, it would be wrong to buy your wife flowers if you received pleasure from her receiving the flowers. In order to drive this home, he just kind of told a story about like, what would it look like for a man to be at work all day? You know, he's working all day. We'll pretend he's working hard and not just clicking windows on computers like I do all day. But like he's really working and on the way home he's like, flowers. You know, and he's not going to pick up like the, the Kroger flowers that I always get from my, my wife, like the, the clearance yellow sticker ones. Guys, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe your wife doesn't because you take that little clearance sticker off before you handed those to her at home. But go to like a florist, pick up a really nice bouquet of flowers. You know, you get out of your car and you don't go in the garage or park in the driveway and then walk in through the garage. Like you want to do it all formal, right? You have the, ar- the flowers cradled in your arm. You come up to your door, knock on the door. You wait a couple minutes, your wife answers. She sees your face and she's all, all happy, but then she sees the flowers. And that smile dissipates into like a scowl. She takes her hand slaps the flowers on the ground, then backhands you across the face. She's like, how dare you bought me flowers? How selfish of you. You only bought me flowers because of the happiness you'd receive because of how happy I was to receive flowers. I love how a simple story can destroy an entire philosophy. Hear me this morning. Desiring a godly reward is nothing to be ashamed of. Desiring a godly reward is nothing to be ashamed of. Even Jesus was motivated by the idea of a future reward. We read in the scriptures that it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. And so here we are at the end of the sermon. I was joking with Lyle before. I'm like, I've never preached a sermon where I ended on, like, reward for good behavior. It kind of, like, flows against the ideas of grace that we're used to. I don't think we can make any other argument. Like, this is, this is the focus of Jesus in these verses, that we are built to be motivated by reward. So my encouragement for you this morning in light of that is to learn to live in the presence and communion with your Father. If you are in Christ, you are perfect because you've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. All of your impure motivations have been forgiven. And hear me this morning. You will be rewarded. Your work is not in vain. If you don't consider yourself a Christian this morning, I want to ask you, what are you seeking after? Where do you look for joy, for peace, for rest? Are you looking to find that 
in the praise from other people. I want to encourage you this morning to find your rest in the merciful hands of a gracious God who promises to reward you in Christ, not only for the rest of your days on this earth, but for an eternity after. Let's pray.